Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 16. How far? About 20 kilometers from here, by the highway, Sindra replied, sounding crowded in the back seat and irritated. Is there a back route? I asked, fighting with the knot on my armband before pocketing it again. The rebels may have the major roads closed off. Well, she trailed off, thinking a bit, then asked G, who was driving, a quick question. He replied with a lengthy comment and then gave me a quick shrug. He says there is a way around, longer, and tonight was predicted for snow. Makes driving by hand very bad. Yeah, because that's so much worse than getting shot in the streets, I replied, with more sarcasm than I really felt. It was just force of habit. How can you make a living, Spacer? You have such a crap attitude. So I've been told, even recently. How long will the back way take? G thinks an hour once we are out of the city. And if the weather holds off. Why do you help us? Because you help me. It's what adults do, right? She tisked behind me and tried to get comfortable, as much as the car's shallow backseat allowed. Finding a vehicle had been as simple as looking for one. A particularly decrepit-looking thing, parked outside a supply depot, revealed itself in short order. It was a small car on six low wheels, not at all what I'd hoped to find, but there was just enough room for us all, so it was the one. Getting into it was a quick crack. Its wireless lock system was fairly primitive, and I had an illicit program in my risk comp for just such emergencies. Like I said, I tended to grab everything interesting off the nets. Starting the ground car up was a bit more of a bother, but G seemed to know his way around such vehicles, certainly more than just to drive an expensive one. He popped the engine housing, and after a minute or so, it sputtered to life. The thing smelled bad inside, like old, rotten food, and everyone commented miserably upon this, even while folding themselves into the small seats. It sported a control design I'd never seen before. Two sticks, one for each hand. No pedals, no other knobs or levers. This didn't really matter to me because I couldn't drive any kind of car. With a life and profession far outside of gravity wells, at least until today, it had never been a skill I'd needed. Instead, I motioned for our resident gearhead to take the controls while I claimed shotgun, or panther in this case. The other three squeezed him back with Syndra right behind my head. Maley had been crying for some time, still terrified, and Benley was searching for some mythical tissues for her that he had in one pocket of his designer cold gear. My father will be grateful, Sindra stated, then snapped at Benley in low speak, but he still kept squirming and elbowing her as he dug through his pockets. Can you folks put me up for the night? Just until daybreak? Is there room? This made her laugh. You really are stupid, Spacer. 
moving off through creepy back alleys and side streets, where even creepier back alley-type people were hanging out, bottles in hand, fires burning from barrels, my companions seemed to see this side of the populace for the first time. They watched out the windows with open-mouthed shock and disgust. Lots of drunk little kids, lots of laughing. It was a special night out there. We got more than our share of return looks, and G maneuvered us around every obstacle, occasionally shouting out the window and getting jeers and obscene gestures for his trouble. He eventually nodded toward a factory building rising above the others a few blocks over and spoke quietly. That is Groich, Maley leaned forward, pointing. Okay, I replied, a little confused. You have key, she encouraged. Oh, that's where it is. Okay, great. Absently, I marked the general location on the map, in my eye view, as a waypoint. Hey, do you think you could just... I started to say, but G brought us to a sudden, jostling stop. A group of young toughs were in our way, blocking the alley, one of them with a crowd gun in his hand. He shouted at us and banged on the hood. Then others started hitting and kicking the car as they leered in at the girls and spouted threatening low-speak challenges at the rest of us. The big boy with his big toy waved it at G, who looked frightened and started to open the door. Don't, I commanded, holding his arm. That gun can't penetrate the glass or the metal of the car. He didn't understand me, of course, so Syndra peppered him with a quick translation. Just go, I shouted, gesturing us forward. He picked up on that well enough and tapped the sticks a few times, then stabbed them forward. With a higher whine, the car leaped ahead, throwing us all back into the seats. The boys outside dove to either side, cursing and yelling, and the leader guy with the crowd gun fired before doing the same. A widening bundle of ceramic hairs tinkled off the windshield right in front of G, who shouted in surprise but didn't lose his cool. The leader of the pack didn't quite make it away in time. The car did a sort of fast bump, and the boy outside screamed as we passed by. Oh, Deus, Maley spouted, but we were already clear, and everyone further on in the alley hugged the walls. In a moment, the frightened, good-looking boy at the sticks turned us onto a road, and with a screech of tires, we were away. The kids were gabbling in low speak, with Maley blubbering something rhythmic that might have been a prayer. Syndra barked for them to shut up, and eventually they did. It's okay, I assured them. We made it through. We're going to be fine. You don't know that, Benlay spouted. No one knows anything, Syndra pronounced, crossing her arms in irritation and fear. We just have to keep trying. Boy back there has been killed, Maley wailed. He was not, I argued. This car is not heavy enough for that. Maybe he has a broken leg or something. He fired on us, need I remind you? We're alive, we're moving, we're okay. My bedside manner could have used some polishing, maybe, but they calmed down after a couple of minutes. We had to drive through jostling supply lanes and crowded main roads. At one point, another group, some men and women, looking very desperate, dashed over and, like the others, started grabbing at the doors and pounding on the roof. They were much better dressed than those boys had been and seemed less interested in us than they were in the car. I brought the panther up and started to open the window on my side, but with a warning shout, they melted back into the crowd and we just moved on. 
Why are these roads so full? I exclaimed, perplexed. Where are they all coming from? That last bunch I do not know. Most of these others from the buildings around here, Sindra supplied. Well, that can't be right, I argued, watching a man with a group of kids as they pushed around and robbed an old, raggedy woman of her bags. There are children and families, elderly people. Where do they live? These are all factories. Ja, Benley put in. They're homes. No, I pressed loudly, because the apparent language barrier was pissing me off. Where are the apartments for everyone? The residential section of town. It might be safer to drive through there. It is what I said. They live there, the boy burst out. It is a factory, but also Trenaya Groich, a, a Trenaya neighborhood, for the workers and their families. Now I was totally confused. So stupid, Sindra growled. Too much stardust in your eyes, Spacer. There are apartments in the basement of the plant, on rooftops, in corners out of the way, and even in between machines. Any place people can lay down, the company makes rooms and leases them to the workers for a percentage of their wages. I blinked at that. I didn't see any signs of that on my way into town. I walked right through a big refinery from the travel port. Of course not, Sindra replied dismissively. That factory is the showpiece. It is the perfect facility to present to off-world dignitaries and investors. It is the only one like it on all of Barlow. There is one perfect farm, too, not far from the city. They are just for you foreigners. Let me get this straight. People are living inside most of the factories? Like, right next to the pipes and things? Whole families live in them. The children, too. Thousands, millions, their whole lives in the machinery. Most drop out of school young and start work in the factory like their parents. Maley made an emphatic comment then, which I couldn't understand. Ja, Sindra concurred, flushed and angry again, her trademark scowl back in place. It makes no difference that they do, because their schools are just for job training. Schools are in the factories, too. Children raised in such places are only good for such places. Is it any wonder why we rebel? We? You're still making that mistake? I had turned around to look at her, straining my neck. We! She shouted, very red-faced. As a people! As a planet! Well, I wouldn't say that to any of them, I muttered, turning back around and nodding at the directionless mob outside the car. She cursed in low speak by way of reply, but I got the impression that it wasn't only at me. The weather report had been on target, while the inky darkness of the night, indicating overcast, had foreboded a weather change all on its own. It wasn't long before a dirty mix of freezing rain and sleet started in on us. Traveling through it was spooky to me, at one point obscuring the road entirely. The kids looked tense, especially G. He drove in silence, leaning forward a bit and peering through the windshield with concentration. The car should have had onboard collision detection systems like every other modern vehicle, but he wasn't acting like it did. Road conditions aside, the fact that there was water just falling out of the sky was absolutely unnerving to me. I opened the window at one point, took off my glove, and let the achingly cold stuff wet my hand. It was completely weird. 
Sindra eventually complained about the cold, so I shut it back up. Precipitation was a thing I'd always heard about and had seen in countless vids, but simply hadn't been able to imagine for real. I felt disturbed by the careless, heedless waste of water, always a precious resource on any ship or station, and here it was just dropping down by the liter, by the millions of liters, and no one but me was even vaguely impressed. Likely, the kids were more moved by the events of the night. Personally, I just needed some real sleep and real food. After that, I could think about Carmi and Dell. And after that, well... I must have dozed off because those thoughts were the last thing I knew, and the mottled factoryscape was all I saw before Sindra's rough shake of my shoulder brought me back. Space air, she hissed. People with guns. I blinked and looked around. The weather certainly hadn't changed, but the landscape had. We were on a lonesome road without overhead streetlights. The car had front floods, highlighting the precipitation into white streaks, as well as some dim running lights on the side. I could see scrub and bushes out my window stretching off into the darkness. I thought there were larger things, like trees hovering out there too, wild and uncontrolled like everything else here. It was wet and nasty out, but there were some other lights on the road ahead, and bulky figures, the profile of which I thought I recognized. Soldiers. I gripped the pistol part of the panther and thumbed it onto full auto. I didn't immediately think to switch it from the ape to the anti-purse rounds, only when we rolled up on the two closest figures, one on either side, and I hastened to press the correct button. I then stuffed the weapon down between my feet and managed to drop the flight bag on top of it just before G brought us to a stop. They moved in from both sides, and then a couple more came up from hidden positions behind. They wore military uniforms all right, with neither black caps nor blue armbands, and had the bearing and apparent discipline of the army. Not rebels, then, but whether that was good or bad just yet, I didn't know. They shined handlights inside, front and back, their bright white beams striating on the wet and icy windows. They were just indistinct, half-menacing shadows behind that brightness, but their weapon outlines were plain. Then Maylie opened her window, and Sindra motioned for me to do the same. Kratehodja! Sebota! Bending over a bit, a large boy looked in at Maylie and the rest of us. He couldn't have been any older than these kids, but he had the weapon and the duty. He didn't possess any of the temerity that a bunch of unarmed rich kids might. Kids caught on the wrong side of a civil war and desperately trying to get home. He looked hulking, intimidating to me, with my now empty hands and foreign way of thought. Despite my own unease, the others in the car seemed to relax a bit, maybe because these were real soldiers, members of a military force that used the symbols of and took their orders from the same oppressive regime the kids had been spitting upon only hours before. The woman on my side asked something I didn't catch, but Sindra, leaning forward, answered for me. The girl identified us all by name and, I think, related some of the events of the evening. This soldier had a hard, unsympathetic look in her eyes, and a different rank insignia on her cold gear sleeves than the other one. I'd seen the same stripe on that security team leader back at the travel port. 
A lower-level officer, she was likely in charge here, on what had to be some crap duty on such an unpleasant night. She was wary, not just of us, but of everything. Again, hardly older than Syndra, this young woman was definitely not pampered or spoiled. She just held us all with a tight gaze. After a moment, she brought up a handheld ident and scanned me, or maybe everyone. The fellow on the other side did the same. In most places, everyone's genetic code was on file and accessible for use by the authorities. My own code was in the gunnery database back in Finery, but I didn't know if these guys would have access to that. In a moment, the answer was clear, when the one on my side arched an eyebrow at her scanner and glanced up once more. To me, she asked, Hayat Sebota? I turned to Sindra, who'd been listening to the other one on Maley's side. She had to have the woman repeat herself, which didn't seem like an accustomed thing. The two engaged in a brief, hurried, low-speak exchange, but I did catch the words Alliance and Estaren, Starman. Spacer. The soldier ordered something to her companions across the roof of the low vehicle, then moved a half step away as she spoke over calm. That went on for a few long and frankly terrifying moments before she closed in again. Her demeanor was altered. She wore a small smile now and spoke rapidly to Sindra and her companions alike. She pointed off down the road ahead of us and stepped back a bit. My companions were all relieved at this and thanked them profusely. We drove on slowly then and closed the windows. What was that? I asked, hurting my neck again. Sindra was grinning in relief, which honestly only added to the oddness of the event. Our parents told them to expect us. Okay, then why'd they let me through? What did you say? She seemed just as puzzled by that. I told her what you told us. She said at first they did not have you on file. And then she talked on the comm and I was good to go. Somebody up ahead likes me then? She humphed, but it seemed good-natured for a change. They must not really know you, Spacer. The area hereabouts looked rather rural, but the roads were excellent. Even this back one, which soon connected up to a winding lane with gated properties on either side. It was too dark to see much beyond this, but there were family crests on each entrance. Big fancy things in gold and silver, with birds and lions and a lot of other stuff that made no sense. Quaint single-story buildings here and there as we passed by revealed themselves to be stores and small shops. All were closed and dark. Roads split off from time to time, but G knew his way. A huge, neo-Gothic-style building, off in the distance, and a light with stabbing exterior floods appeared out of the pitch. Bright and yellow, it was a bizarre manifestation in this world of cold shadows. Like the other properties we'd passed, it was protected by tall fencing, topped with powered hook wire and cruel medieval-style spikes. Based on the dark silhouettes of the few homes I'd spied, this one seemed like the prime jewel of the crown, surrounded by beautiful but lesser treasures on all sides. Home sweet home, Syndra muttered, her relief and levity of a few minutes before noticeably absent now that we were approaching the place. There were more patrols here, 
some posted on the roadside, some under murky streetlights, and some driving along on the opposite side of the road. There was even another of those C&C armored vehicles, like at the spaceport. We got waves and salutes from everybody we passed. At one point, we were stopped again. Two large trucks with amber flashing lights above pulled onto the road ahead of us and a couple more behind. Then we were waved on, now part of a military motorcade. I think I fell into the right crowd, I muttered, feeling quite impressed. I think we might be dead right now if you had not, Sindra replied, without any special warmth, but without any venom either, which was an improvement. She repeated this again to the others, or something like it, and they were silent, as if considering her words. Then Maylie reached up to pat me on the shoulder. After another minute or so, with the weather still making visibility rotten, but the welcome presence of the other vehicles smothering that unconscious feeling of isolation I'd been sporting for a while, we all turned and proceeded down what seemed like the community's major road. The big place in the distance had been hidden for a while behind trees, but after a few hundred meters, we came upon a high entrance for it, guarded by more soldiers and armored vehicles. They already had the gate open, and we just drove through without stopping. I suddenly had the presence of mind to stuff the panther back into my bag. I couldn't imagine these soldiers reacting well to the sight of it. Despite this heady turnabout in the evening's fortunes, or maybe because of it, I knew only too well how quickly things could change, and I didn't want them to do so poorly on my account. A long drive serpentined around slick corners, but the procession went slowly. G obviously didn't trust the steering or brakes of the stolen old car, despite our speed and even though he was familiar with these twists and turns. Then, suddenly... We were through the forested grounds, and there was the mansion I'd seen from afar, no less magnificent up close. Lights were on within, shining yellow from wide, high windows, and I could see people moving back and forth in nearly all of them. Soldiers stood on guard duty at the corners of the house and the front entrance, and I thought I saw a couple of them lurking on the gabled roof with long, cruel weapons that could kill at a distance. Are your parents in the military like Maylie's? No, Sindra replied, looking over my shoulder through the windshield at the rain-blurred display. Patro is a commissioner in the government. Maman is an investor, but they are separated. She lives back in the empire with her side of the family. He has many friends here. So I see. She looked at me out of the corner of her eye. He is exactly what is wrong with Barlo and I have run back to him. You have a habit of reminding people of unpleasant truths, Spacer. Have I? Sorry. No, you are not. I will ask him to find out about your friends. In the meantime, you are our guest. Try to act like one. There were military vehicles parked on slushy fields around the house in what looked like strategic positions, and several soldiers got out and watched the parade as we drove up. A couple of them waited in the cold rain at the curb. Tall doors opened then, spilling bright light onto slick steps, and several people appeared, including a guy in a black and white suit. He opened a comically huge umbrella as soon as he was clear of the doors, and then another man stepped forward underneath it. 
This fellow was shorter and older, dressed in a red jacket. He pressed towards us quickly and firmly like a machine. The other guy jogged to keep up, though his legs and stride were longer. On my side, a soldier opened both doors, front and back, and then saluted as the older man came up to us. Babin, he called with clear relief upon spying Sindra, who was just extricating herself from the back seat. He helped her out and then crushed her close to him, just a dark figure in red with arms like desperate bands around the girl. All the wealth and power on display were insignificant beside this moment, as if all that mattered to him on this frozen, burning world was his child and the concrete fact that she was now home. They retreated together under the circus tent held by that funny, tall penguin man, and the soldier who had opened my door gestured for the rest of us to follow. He started to help me with my battered and filthy flight bag, but I held the strap long enough for him to take notice, then leaned in close to whisper, Uh, this doesn't belong in the house. His English may have been good, or maybe it was my tone, but he took a moment to unzip the carry-all after I released it to him and waved for another uniformed soldier to step near. He passed the bag to this woman with a quiet order and then just nodded to me, gesturing toward the door. This exchange had only taken a few seconds, but I walked quickly nonetheless and followed the other kids who'd preceded me up the steps. Ahead of us all, the master and young miss of this place were just entering. They disappeared into yellow brightness, away from rain and ice, like players from the past. An ancient king, perhaps, and his prodigal princess, who was now delivered up safe and sound on one very dark and very dangerous night. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>